title this morning is going to be, Die to Self and Live for God. Die to Self and Live for God. Our text, of course, will be that passage which was just read, Luke 9, 23-27. This text is very, very closely connected to the passage that we studied last week. In verse 20, you remember, we saw Peter's confession on behalf of the disciples that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. In verse 21, Jesus commanded the disciples not to share this revelation with anyone. And then in verse 22, Jesus revealed His coming rejection, suffering, death, and resurrection to the disciples. If we were to read these two texts separately, we might not immediately make their connection. And thankfully, the context shows us that they are vitally connected. The disciples had just been told by Jesus that He must suffer, that He must be rejected, that He would ultimately die. They believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. They could not imagine that the Messiah would suffer, would be rejected, and would be killed. We saw how Peter responded to this revelation in Matthew 16, verse 22. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. When Jesus revealed that he must suffer, be rejected, and be killed, the immediate response from the disciples was, How do we stop this? In these verses, Jesus corrected this wrong response from the disciples. Instead of trying to stop Christ's suffering, the disciples were to prepare for their own suffering as they followed Jesus. We're 2,000 years removed from the events recorded in this passage, but the truth taught here is just as applicable today. All who are disciples of Jesus Christ must prepare to follow His example in suffering. The way of Christ is not the way of the world. It is not a way to have an easy and peaceful life. To follow Christ is to follow Him in suffering. If we will be faithful disciples, we must count the cost, pick up our cross, and follow Jesus in the way of suffering. From our text this morning, we will look at the cost of discipleship, compelling reasons why disciples of Jesus Christ gladly pay this cost, and then finally the reward of discipleship. Before we begin, let's once again go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come before you this morning, resting in you, trusting in you. Lord, I pray. Pray that we'd be humble before your word as we consider what is taught here. Lord, the, the high cost that comes with discipleship, the life that you have called us to lead. Lord, I pray that as we consider these verses, maybe for the first time, or maybe we are being reminded of them again this morning, pray that we would heed your word here, that we'd be humble before it, that you would work in us what you would have by your Holy Spirit working through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now first, the cost of discipleship. There in verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. First, this applies to all disciples. Jesus began there, If any man will come after me. Though this was first taught to the twelve, it was not limited to them. This is the call of Jesus Christ to all those who would be his disciples. Jesus did not teach a, a tier system of Christianity. 
That's often how we look at it. Maybe, maybe there were some lofty ideals required of the apostles. And then maybe a little bit below the apostles, there are some exceptionally devout and committed Christians that God has used in tremendous ways. And then maybe below them, there are committed Christian workers, missionaries, pastors, preachers, that sort of thing. And on and on we could go with this imaginary hierarchy among Christians and what we think is required at each level. But Jesus did not give levels. He said, if any man will come after me, if any will follow me, we are all one in Christ. All who are part of his body have the same calling as his disciples. Now, what is that calling? And Jesus summarizes it with two statements in this verse. First, let him deny himself. Let him deny himself. Self-denial. This is all-encompassing. No part of a believer's life is left untouched. In every area, self must be challenged and must be denied. This is opposite from the wisdom of this world. 2 Timothy 3, verses 2 and 4, warn that men are lovers of self and lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. The world tells you, fulfill yourself. Jesus tells us, deny yourself. The world says, follow follow your heart. The Bible says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The world says, look out for yourself. Get all you can. Can all you get. And sit on that can. Jesus says, whosoever will save his life will lose it. This addresses one of the most fundamental problems that we have. The idolatry of self. Putting ourselves above God. This was the first temptation in the garden. The serpent said to Eve, You shall be as gods. This is addressed in the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And Jesus told his disciples, Deny yourself. What's what's involved in self-denial? In the history of the church, some have taken this to mean the, the total denial of any and all creature comforts. We can think of the monastic movements and movements like that. Is that what God expects of us? Are we to renounce our earthly possessions? Go live out in the woods as hermits somewhere? No. And we know that's not what Jesus meant here because that's not the example that he set. You could look to John the Baptist maybe as an example of a life like that, but not Jesus. In fact, in Luke 7.34, we saw... Jesus addressed accusations brought against him by some who were critical because he came eating and drinking. We've seen Jesus went to feasts, he went to parties, he went to weddings. Jesus wore good quality clothing. There were certainly creature comforts that Jesus did not have, but there were many comforts of this world that he did partake of and enjoy. And so it cannot be that he was instructing his disciples to deny all of these creature comforts of life, but rather the instruction is to deny ourselves Sinful lusts, whatever form they take. We must give up on our natural inclination toward sin. We must willingly part with all the affections of our sinful lusts. All that appeals to us in this fallen world, we must deny if we would have Christ. Deny yourself. Again, this leaves no part of the Christian's life untouched. In your family life, deny yourself. How many families are broken by selfish ambition? Do you put your career before your family? Do you put your pleasure, your leisure, your hobbies above your family? 
Deny yourself. In your work, you are to deny yourself. The way of the world is to get ahead at any cost. That is not the way of Christ. In our labor, we're to be diligent, hardworking, honest, and fair. And sometimes that comes at a cost. If that cost means making less money or being passed over for a promotion, so be it. Our Lord has called us to deny ourselves. In ministry, in the Lord's work, we're to, not, to deny ourselves. It is a shame to the name of Christ that there are many churches and ministries where people are trampled for the sake of the leadership's goals or vision. It's not self-denial, that's the opposite. We must guard against the tyranny of self even in work that is being done in the name of God. In every area of our lives, we need to carefully examine ourselves and ask the Lord to reveal any areas where we allow self to rule and where the Holy Spirit brings conviction, we must repent. Jesus says, If anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself. Self-denial. Next, Jesus said, Let him take up his cross daily. This would have probably been a, a shocking statement for the disciples who first heard it. The cross was an instrument of, of shame, of torture, a tool of execution. It was also a symbol of oppression. Crucifixion was so terrible a method of execution that it was illegal for Roman citizens to be crucified. But it was widely used in areas controlled by the Romans as a method to keep down insurrectionists. The Romans used the terror of crucifixion to keep people in line. Josephus tells of how during the siege of Jerusalem around 70 AD, any Jews who were caught outside the city were crucified within view of the walls. Sometimes there was as many as 500 people crucified every day. So many were crucified that there was a shortage of suitable wood from which to make crosses. And the goal of these mass crucifixions was to crush the will of the defenders to resist. This is how the Romans used the cross. The cross represented Roman oppression. Why would Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, make reference to such a terrible device? Was he going to turn it upon the Romans? Was he going to use it upon them like they had used it upon the Jews? No. Jesus told his disciples, take up your cross. Well, this teaches us several things. First, every disciple has a cross. Troubles are common in this world. A great deal of the suffering that we face is just suffering. That is, it's suffering that we bring upon ourselves because of our particular sin. If we suffer under our legal system as a murderer because we murdered someone, that is just suffering. If we suffer as a liar because we are habitually dishonest, well, that is just suffering. If we suffer poor health because we have recklessly indulged the flesh, well, that is just suffering. But both the wicked and the righteous face suffering in this life that is not directly related to some particular sin. Sometimes we suffer as the result of the sins of others. Sometimes we suffer simply as a result of living in this sin-cursed world. This suffering is the result of sin in the broadest sense, but it is not the result of, of one of our particular sins. And all people suffer this way. And to each person belongs a particular part of the whole. And the Christian's particular portion of trials are referred to as a cross. And remember, nothing in this world simply happens. 
God rules and overrules in all things. Whatever cross is ours has been given to us in the infinite wisdom of God. When we consider our trials, we can appropriately call them our cross. And we're often tempted to look at the crosses of others and think of how well we could bear them. Oh, if only I had His cross, I could bear it for the glory of God. Or if I had her cross, I would, I would bear it so much better. What God has given you is what is best for you. God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. Honor God by faithfully bearing your cross. And don't think of your cross as simply your trials themselves. Again, everyone has trials. Everyone. The righteous and the wicked. But the Christian has a cross. Your trials are your cross because they are where you die to self and live for God. Again, your trials are your cross because in your trials you are to die to self and live for God. Your sickness is your cross as you die to self and live for God. Your heartbreak is your cross as you die to self and live for God. Your trouble at work or at home is your cross as you die to self and live for God. And Jesus calls upon us as His disciples to take up our cross, to die to self, and to live for God. All of His disciples must take up their cross. It was the Roman custom for the condemned to carry their cross to the place of execution. So we, as disciples of Jesus Christ, are, call, are called to take up our cross. Again, the cross that is before us has been prepared for us, and we are to bear it. Now, we should not go out of our way to find crosses to bear. We don't need to make crosses for ourselves. This world has trouble enough. But we must not leave the way of our duty to avoid our cross. Where our cross is laid on our way, we must take it up. And may we echo the testimony of Paul in Acts 20, verses 23 and 24. Bonds and afflictions abide me, but none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. And the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Unmoved by afflictions, not counting his life dear unto himself, but living for the glory of God. Whatever cross you are called to take up, remember, you're not simply to avoid it, or, excuse me, you're not simply to bear it as an unavoidable evil. Rather, it is a tool in the hands of God for your sanctification. The attitude of a true disciple of Christ is not, I must bear this cross because I cannot avoid it, but rather, I will bear this cross because it will work for God's glory and for my good. And notice that this call to take up our cross comes after the call to deny ourselves. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. There is a progression here. If we will not deny ourselves for the sake of Christ, we will not bear our cross for Him either. A pastor from years ago rightly observed, He that cannot take up the resolution to live a saint has a demonstration within himself that he is never likely to die a martyr. That's a thought worth dwelling on. He that cannot take up the resolution to live like a saint has a demonstration within himself that he is never likely to die a martyr. Jesus also instructed us to take up our cross daily. The Christian warfare is not once and done. 
It is a lifelong struggle. Every day we must take up our cross. Every day we must die to self and live for God. So far from this text, we've seen the cost of discipleship. All who would be disciples of Jesus Christ must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus. Next, we see why disciples of Jesus gladly pay this cost. First, because it is the way of life. Look at verse 24. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. This is a paradox. He who saves his life will lose it. He who loses his life for Christ's sake will save it. Let's think about this. What is the ultimate good? Now, if you were to go out and ask a thousand people that question, I wonder how many different answers you would get. What is the ultimate good? And people would also answer that question differently in different circumstances. What if your life was on the line? What would you be willing to do to preserve your life? Now, many people are willing to go to extreme lengths and even do terrible things to preserve their life. And if this world is all there is, then that's a logical and consistent conclusion. If you believe your existence ends when your body dies, then you should desperately work to preserve your life. And as you go through life, your concern should be to enjoy it as much as possible. If this is all that there is, then you must get all you can while you can. You must live your life to the fullest and preserve your life at all costs. But in this verse, Jesus says that's the way of death. Whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. What alternative does Jesus present? But whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall save it. Think of the twelve to whom Jesus first said these words. Other than Judas Iscariot, all of them would be faithful to Jesus unto death. It's believed that ten of them suffered martyrdom for the sake of Jesus Christ. As far as we know, of the twelve apostles, only John died of natural causes. But even for John, there were several times where it seemed likely that he would also martyr. And he willingly suffered, or he willingly submitted to that possible fate of martyrdom. These eleven men, did they throw their lives away? Did they waste their lives? Jesus says, no. Whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall save it. When we look at church history, we see many, many people who are called upon to give their lives, their physical lives, for the sake of Jesus Christ. An early Christian martyr, Polycarp, was told to deny Christ and he would be spared death by burning. Polycarp answered, For eighty and six years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. And how can I now blaspheme my king who saved me? A fourth century martyr named Phileas wrote of his fellow Christian martyrs, These who had endured terrible tortures became much stronger in the faith than they had been before. And when it was left to the free choice of each of them, either to touch the shameful heathen sacrifices and thereby be delivered from all trouble, yea, from death itself, and be invested with the former freedom, or to refuse to sacrifice and receive sentence of death, they, without the least deliberation, chose the latter, and boldly went unto death, knowing full well that it is written in the word of God, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. 
During a period of persecution in the early 10th century, a king in southern Spain tried to tempt a 13-year-old Christian boy with all manner of earthly pleasure. And he was told that if he would partake in these sinful activities, he would be spared. If he refused, he would be tortured to death. He answered the king, I am a Christian and will remain a Christian and obey only Christ's commands all the days of my life. In short order, he lost his life for the sake of Christ. A more recent Christian martyr we might be more familiar with is Jim Elliot, just 28 years old, when he was killed trying to bring the gospel to an isolated tribe in Ecuador. He and his fellow missionaries knew that this was an incredibly dangerous undertaking, and yet they all went. And to a man, all of them were killed. Did they waste their lives? Did they throw them away? Jim Elliot wrote in his journal, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In the eyes of the world, all these martyrs were fools. Why would so many give their lives for the sake of Jesus Christ? Pliny the Younger, who was a Roman governor in Asia Minor in the early 2nd century, after he had tortured and killed several Christians, he wrote to the Emperor Trajan, I could discover nothing more from the Christians than depraved and excessive superstition. What fools these Christians are to give their lives for the sake of Christ. In the eyes of the world, this is foolishness. Yet, this is true discipleship. Jesus says, He who loses his life for my sake will save it. You and I, we don't face this sort of persecution. It seems unlikely that anytime soon we will be called upon to choose between denying Christ and suffering a terrible death. But that day may come for us. It's faced even now by our brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world. But we live in relative peace. Does that mean that we can not take seriously this call to discipleship that's found in this verse? We might not be called upon to give our lives in martyrdom for Christ. But we are all called upon still to give our lives for Christ. Remember the words of Jesus in the previous verse. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That is a call to give up your life. Philippians 1.21 says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Galatians 2.20 I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live... In the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, your life is not your own. It belongs to Christ. And this will lead us to do things that the world looks at and says, that's foolishness. Why are you here this morning? Why have you gathered to fellowship with the church? You could have slept in. You could spend this time relaxing or enjoying a hobby, or working a second job. Yet you're here. Why? There are many biblical reasons for this. A desire to fellowship with other believers. You want to be strengthened and encouraged as we worship the Lord together around His Word. We want to carry on the one another's as laid out for us in the Bible. We want to partake of the ordinances. All of these things are in accordance with Christ's command. The world looks at this and says, you're wasting your life. 
It's foolishness. And the Christian says, I have no greater pleasure than to give my life for the sake of Christ. Why do we give to the Lord's work? We spend money here. We send money all over the world. Why do we do this? Think of all the things that you could do and enjoy and have with the money that you give away. The world looks at this and says, you're wasting your life. It's foolishness. The Christian says, I have no greater pleasure than to give my life for the sake of Christ. Think of the time you spend in prayer and in Bible study. Think of all the things you could do with that time otherwise. Why do you do this? The world looks at it and says, it's foolishness. You're wasting your time. The Christian says, I have no greater pleasure than to give my life for the sake of Christ. We don't need to go to the extreme case of martyrdom for us to choose our temporal life over Christ. There are many ways in which we can deny the Lord our life. In any one of thousands of small, everyday decisions, we can choose our life over Christ. But if we choose our life over Christ, we've already lost. Jesus said, Whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. May this move us with compassion toward those around us who are laboring desperately to save their lives, to get the most enjoyment they can out of this life, to make this life last as long as possible, to serve self above all else. They are laboring on the path of death. They cannot succeed. All they do and all that they try it will be to no avail. In the end, they will lose their life. You, Christian, you know the way of life. Eternal life. True life. Eternal life doesn't begin at some distant point in the future. Eternal life begins when we lose our life for Christ's sake. When we die to self and live for God. Having compassion on those who are walking on the path of death, may we show them the path of life. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. First, because it is the way of life, true life. And second, it is the way of profit. In verse 25, we have another powerful statement from Jesus. He said, For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? I think I can safely say that all of us have dreams, we have goals, we have ambitions, we have something that we want that we don't yet possess. Maybe it's a new car. Maybe it's a better job. A bigger retirement account. A certain relationship. It could be a million other things. What if you could have that desire met? Right now. This instant. But there's one catch. You die. How many of you would take that deal? What if the deal was better? Forget your little dreams. What if you were offered everything? The whole world. Nothing was kept from you. Nothing you wanted. Nothing that you desired to possess. Anything you could possibly desire in this world was yours in an instant. But it comes at the same terms. You die. How many are taking that deal? No sane person would take that deal when it's presented like that. Yet every day, people take a similar deal, but at far worse terms. Every day, people labor and strive to get what they desire out of this life. 
No matter what they get, they're never satisfied. No matter how much pleasure they extract from life, they find it in the end to be vanity, to be empty, that it does not bring the fulfillment they seek. And then they die and they have nothing. Jesus challenges us in verse 25. What advantage do you gain living like this? Even if you could gain the whole world, even if you could get it all, what profit is this for you in the end? If you lose yourself. The disciple of Jesus realizes that the value system of this world is bankrupt. There is no hope, no future, no life apart from Jesus Christ. If we would save our life, we must give it away. We must die to self and live for God. And what we receive through Christ is everything that this world promises but can't deliver. In Christ, we have life. In Christ, we have hope. In Christ, we have purpose. In Christ, we have meaning. In Christ, we have all that is good. Christ has given Himself for us. And when we are joined to the body of Christ in salvation, we are made joint heirs with Him. All the riches of God are ours in Christ Jesus. The world says, give me your life and I will promise you everything, but deliver you nothing but death. Jesus says, die to yourself, pick up your cross, follow me, and I will give you life, eternal life, and make you joint heirs with me. The cost of discipleship is tremendous. Jesus demands everything. He demands our lives. But who would not pay such a cost in view of the reward? As disciples of Jesus Christ, we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Because it is the way of life, it is the way of profit, and finally, it is the way of acceptance. Look at verse 26. For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, this, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed, when he shall come in his own glory, and in his Father's, and of the holy angels. One of the things that people desire most in this world is to be accepted. People want to be wanted, want to belong, want to be loved. The world demands a terrible price for this. You can have the approval of the world that comes at the cost of your soul. Would you deny the Lord before the world? Are you ashamed of Jesus before the world? In these verses, Jesus warned that those who are ashamed of Him, He will be ashamed of when He returns in glory. James 4.4 4 states it very strongly. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. As we are out in the world, we face temptation to be ashamed of Jesus and His words. Someone says, Are you a Christian? What do you say? Someone asks, Do you believe the Bible when it says this or when it says that? How do you respond? The temptation in those moments can be very strong to be ashamed of Jesus and of His words. But when faced with such temptation, remember the words of Jesus here in Luke 9.26. For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed. Be strengthened and encouraged to die to self and live for God. It is better to endure the world's ridicule than to have Christ be ashamed of us. So far from our text this morning, we have seen the cost of discipleship. And we've seen why disciples of Jesus gladly pay this cost. It is the way of life, the way of profit, and the way of God's approval. 
Finally, we will consider the reward of discipleship. In verse 27. Look at verse 27. But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. This is an interesting verse. It almost seems out of place. How does verse 27 connect with the verses that have come before? This is a verse of hope and assurance. Our Lord's instruction in this text has been rigorous, severe, extreme. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Lose your life. But the severity of our calling as disciples is tempered with this assurance. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now there's some debate about what this verse is referring to specifically. Some think it's in reference to the next event that we will see in the gospel narrative, which is the transfiguration. And certainly, that was an incredible event that Peter, James, and John were privileged to witness. To see Jesus Christ exalted by the Father in glory was certainly to glimpse the kingdom of God. And so it may very well be that this verse refers to the transfiguration, or at least is in partial reference to that. Others believe that this verse refers to the disciples who saw Christ ascend into heaven and then saw the Holy Spirit descend upon men. Christ came to establish His kingdom in the hearts of men. The disciples saw that work begin in their lifetime. They saw the kingdom of God as we see the kingdom of God. When we see men and women and children brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, delivered from the power of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's dear Son, as Colossians 1.13 says. But whatever specific reference this verse is making, the point for us is the same. First, this verse encourages us because our reward as disciples is secure. Jesus assured His disciples that they would see the kingdom of God in their lifetime. Whatever they would suffer, whatever they would be called upon to give up in their self-denial, whatever their cross, they were assured that it would not be in vain. Christ would triumph. His kingdom would be established. And some of them would see it. All the disciples of Jesus Christ have this same assurance. Whatever we suffer, whatever we must give up in self-denial, whatever our cross, we have assurance that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is on the march, advancing in the hearts of men and women all, all over the world. Not only does this work go on in spite of our suffering, but God works in and through our suffering to advance the kingdom of God. With assurance in the kingdom of God and of our part in His kingdom, we can cheerfully endure as His disciples. 1 Corinthians 15.58 Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This verse also encourages us as we consider the imminence of God's work. Jesus told the twelve that some of them would not die before they had seen the kingdom of God. From the disciples' perspective, whatever Jesus was promising here must shortly come to pass. For generations, the people of God had been waiting for the Messiah. The Old Testament believers had looked for the salvation that God would accomplish, but they did not see the fulfillment of those promises in their lifetimes. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11 talk about this. But Jesus told the disciples that they would see these things. Some of them would live to see the kingdom of God. 
What an encouragement to faithfulness for the twelve. The kingdom of God is at hand. Press on. Be faithful. Some of you will see it in your lifetime. You and I, we have the same encouragement. We live in the spiritual fulfillment of the kingdom. We see the kingdom of God invade the kingdom of Satan and bring forgiveness, life, and righteousness where there had only been guilt, death, and sin. And we look forward to the ultimate fulfillment of God's kingdom promises. Jesus Christ will return in glory. Satan will be destroyed. The dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible. This mortal will put on immortality. There will be a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. When will this happen? The Bible teaches it will happen imminently. It is ready to take place. 1 Peter 4, 7 begins, The end of all things is at hand. Revelation twenty two twenty, the second to last verse in the Bible, says, He, in reference to Jesus, He which testifieth these things, saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And make, and make no mistake, I'm not talking about eschatological opinions. No matter what position you take on prophecy, our hope as Christians is the same. Jesus Christ will return. And the Bible tells us to watch carefully, because He will return soon. And that soon may be relative. The Christians in the first century, they believed that Jesus Christ was going to return soon. Christians in the second century believed that Jesus Christ was going to return soon. And in the third century, and fourth, and fifth, and on down till today, we look for the soon return of Jesus Christ. He may return before we're finished with this meeting. He may not return for another thousand years. But as disciples of Jesus Christ, we have this same blessed hope. And it encourages us in faithfulness. The return of the Lord is at hand. We don't know the time or the hour. We don't know when it will happen. But it is assured. And so we press on, faithfully, bearing our cross, dying to self, living to Christ. Be faithful. Though we suffer, though we must daily die to self and live for Christ, our reward is near. And it is assured. In verse 22, Jesus told His disciples, The Son of Man must suffer. Their immediate response was to try to stop Christ's suffering. Jesus rebuked that response and instead taught on the tremendous cost of discipleship. Anyone who would be His disciple must deny Himself, take up His cross daily, and follow Jesus. The true disciple gladly pays this cost, for it is the way of life, the way of profit, and the way of God's approval. And finally, disciples are encouraged because their reward is secure, and the reward is imminent. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Such a thing cannot be taken lightly. The cost of discipleship is high. Jesus demands your life, everything. You must daily die to self and live for Him. But consider the alternative. If you try to save your life, you will lose it. Even if you could gain the whole world, you would lose yourself. Those who are ashamed of Jesus now, He will not receive in the day of judgment. If you are a Christian, count the cost of discipleship. Weigh it carefully. And choose to suffer affliction with Christ rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. If you're apart from Christ, heed His call to discipleship. 
It's a call given in mercy. Jesus lays out the way of life and the way of death. And He calls us to walk on the way of life. As believers, may we be humbled and obedient as we consider again these words of Jesus and dwell upon our calling as His disciples. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we'd be humbled before Your Word this morning. Lord, that we would not that we would not be like so many who followed Jesus during His earthly ministry, but we're not true disciples. Lord, we are so prone to go the way of the world and to avoid self-denial, to avoid bearing our cross, to avoid dying to self and living for You. Lord, I pray that as we go about our lives the everyday decisions that we have to make. Lord, may these words of Jesus ring in our ears. May we remember our call as disciples of Jesus Christ to die to self and to live for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.